If all we got today was our song service and that prayer, we'd be already blessed. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we will continue this morning with uh, part two of what we're calling Love the Excellent Way, 1 Corinthians 13. I'll start again in verse 1, even though we've covered that, and read down through verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envies not. Charity vaults not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things." So as we look at this passage of Scripture and remember the context in which Paul wrote it, it was not, as you might hear sometimes, um, with candles in the background and a beautiful bride in her wedding dress and a a groom right there and they're just smiling at each other and you say, this is love right here. This is not the setting. The setting is the church at Corinth, as we know, that had so many issues. And the immediate context is a church, as we have talked about, that is called by God, is made by God as one body. And they are to function with their gifts in the body, spiritually edifying and building each other up. And they all have a place and they all have a role as they are in Christ. And they're very gifted. They have many spiritual gifts in this church. But stuck right in the middle of this discussion on the body, how the body is supposed to function, the spiritual gifts within the body, Paul, the Holy Spirit through Paul, brings this word on love. They wanted gifts. They wanted to be in the spotlight. They wanted to have a big place. And Paul said at the end of chapter 12, let me show you a more excellent way. Here is the way of love. And you can have all the gifts in the world. And if you don't have love, it's no good. And you can have great head knowledge of the Scriptures. And we want knowledge of the Scriptures. And you can have great attainments. And you can do great acts of service. And all of those things should be true of us. But if they don't arise from a root of love, and they have a rotten root, then the fruit is no good either. And so Paul is is calling our hearts back to a heart of genuine Christ-like love. As we've said, this love is not just natural affection. Every person in the world, believer or unbeliever, has warm and fuzzy thoughts, has sentiment, has natural attachment. Because we're made in the image of God, there's, there's quote-unquote good things that come from people that don't even know the Lord. We're talking about something different. We're talking about something higher. We're talking about something produced in the heart by the Spirit of Christ. And that's what we see here in this chapter. So if we don't have love, we don't have anything. Now this is not an exhaustive list of love. There's many other, or at least some other descriptions of love in the New Testament, in the Scriptures. But this is a great description of love that Paul gives here. It is true that within the body, 
If we don't have love, we don't have really anything. Colossians 3.14 says that says to put on love or charity, which is the bond of perfectness, the bond of maturity. So a church will not mature. Individuals in Christ will not mature unless they are walking more and more in Christian love. If not, they'll be like the church at Corinth. Remember in chapter 3? You are little babies in Christ. You should be mature, but you're little babes in Christ. I have to talk to you like babies. I have to get down and give you baby talk because you've not grown in love, Paul said. So it's a high calling that we have. This is not just a nice-sounding little chapter. We've talked about it. It's poetic. I mean, who cannot enjoy 1 Corinthians 13? It's just kind of a rhythmic flow to it. But God is not looking for our mere admiration of how nice the chapter sounds. God is calling us to pursue 1 Corinthians 13. And that's, and that's, as we mentioned last time, 1 Corinthians 14, the first exhortation he gives after the chapter on love, he says, follow, pursue charity, pursue love. So none of this, none of us in this lifetime are going to hit a home run on this every day. I would, I would imagine that some of us already this morning, it's not even maybe 11 o'clock, and probably some of us have already swung and missed on 1 Corinthians 13 in some way or shape or form. Christ hit it perfectly. Isn't that good? Christ's love knows no defects. And so his love for us is our security. His love for us is our foundation. So as we stand on his perfect love of salvation, we are pursuing living like him. Another introductory comment that strikes me. You might think sometimes, what does it mean to follow Jesus? You know, the disciples, they, um, man, they, they were there with him, and they could literally, physically follow him. They could walk where he walked. He goes in the temple to preach. They go there. He goes to help some people. They go there. So maybe it seems abstract to us of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a disciple, a learner of Jesus. Let me tell you, 1 Corinthians 13 in 1 Corinthians 13, we are in the school of the master. We're in the school of the master. This is what it means to follow Jesus. One of the great things it means is he's teaching us through, and, and that's for all of the scriptures, not just this chapter, but all of the scriptures. That's how we follow Jesus. What has he said? What has he done, and how can I implement that? How can I, how can I follow in his footsteps? How can I walk in a way that's submitted to his word? So as we're in 1 Corinthians 13, we're in the classroom, we're at our desks, we've got the diagrams out, we're researching very hard, and hopefully, with the Lord's help, it's getting beyond just the research and into the practical process. With some scuffs and with some mess-ups and some tripping, and, and then we say, but, but I see the light. I see this is how I'm supposed to walk. So we are saved by one who has loved us so deeply. Meredith and I were talking this week. How does the Lord love us? <laughs> How in the world does he love us? We, don't, we, don't, we can't scratch, fathom, scratch the surface of the depths of his love with all of our defects, with all of our faults, with all of our shortcomings. And even we who've known him for a long time and know a lot about it, how does he still love us? And the reality is his love goes beyond what we can fathom. It's not earned. Okay? It's not earned. It's not bought and paid for by us. It's God's free, abundant love that He's willingly poured out upon us who deserve nothing but His wrath and His judgment. So we are saved by one who has loved us. We are kept by one who loves us. And now He says, now you follow me. You imitate me. 
You let me rub off on you. As you deal with people that are hard to deal with in the church or outside of the church, as you seek to walk in this world, you follow me. So Christ is our example of love and Christ is our source of love. Really quickly, John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, you bear fruit. So Christ is the one we're plugged into. We're, we are, he is our power source. Just as a, as a vine provides the nourishment and the nutrients and the life so that the branch can produce the fruit, Christ is our source of love. So we stay close to him and we depend upon him. Say, Lord, I don't feel loving today. I don't feel 1 Corinthians 13 today. I feel like the, the church at Corinth and their bad moments today. Lord, fill me. Lord, come, abide with me. Help me, renew me in love. So last time we noticed some of what love is. Love suffers long, verse 4. Love puts up with a lot. Love endures. Love positively is kind, so it's positively doing good. It's looking for opportunities to serve in Jesus' name. It's not stuck. It doesn't envy. So it's not filled with, again, just selfish focus. It doesn't envy. It's happy for the blessings of others. It's not vaunting itself, meaning it's not filled with pride and pushing itself forward and seeking the spotlight. It's not puffed up. Then verse 5, as we start this morning, it does not behave itself unseemly or rudely. So love is considerate of others. Love is considerate of others. This is exactly what was not happening at Corinth, as we've noted several times. In chapter 11, the rich are excluding the poor at the Lord's Supper. So they're not valuing the poor members. They're not valuing their poor brethren in Christ. Maybe this is what Paul has in mind as a specific love doesn't behave unseemly. Love isn't rude. Love is considerate of others. Love values others. You know, this, we teach this to our children, and we have to learn it ourselves. Love doesn't treat others as second rate. You ever notice that we do that subconsciously? Maybe some external characteristic. They have a lot of money, or they're handsome or beautiful, so somehow just gravitate. Maybe I'll treat them extra nice. They don't look as nice. They don't have as much. They're not very attractive, not very talent. So maybe subconsciously we say, don't count as much. Love doesn't do that. See, with the church, that's, that's what was happening. You don't have much, so you don't really matter. And Paul's saying, no, just as Christ has loved you who had nothing, so you are to treat others with great value. Love doesn't behave itself unseemly. It's not rude. We could say more about that, but we want to say a lot about this one. Love seeketh not her own. Love seeketh not her own. Sinners, and that's what we are by nature, saved by grace, but sinners by nature. Sinners worship by nature at the altar of self. Did you let that sink in? Not the first time you've heard that, but let that sink in. Sinners worship at the altar of self. How often do you think a personal pronoun? <laughs> me and my and I want and, and I want this and I need that and this is about me and this will affect me. And so God in his salvation is so good to us, he has, he has saved us and he's now transforming us to worship at his altar. Isn't that good news? Christ, hallelujah, has saved us from slavery to selfishness. I'd like to hear an amen at that one. All right? Christ has saved us from the slavery of selfishness. Because that's a bad, bad place to be. 
And he is at work, and we still battle with that flesh every day. Every day, Jesus says, every day, he says, we have to take up our cross and deny ourselves. And he said it in Luke, daily and follow him. So daily, he's teaching us and he's working in us and convicting us when we fail, when we are living as if we are on the throne. And he is teaching us that it's much better, far better to live He already is there, but to recognize that Christ is on the throne, not Timothy. And you can fill in your name. And so the more that I live in consistency with Christ being on the throne and not myself on the throne, it is so much better. Because he's a great king. He's a good king. It's good that he rules over me. It's bad when I try to take charge. It's bad when I seek to live for myself. So, Living preoccupied with ourself, with our selfish desires, with just our plans, with just our ways, even not even things that aren't necessarily bad. Living preoccupied with ourself, listen, it is vanity. It is emptiness. It's futility. But I want to tell you something. You, and I'm including me with you, we are surrounded. We already have our sinful nature, okay? That's, that's bad enough. But we are surrounded by messages and by influences that say what matters more than anything else is if you are happy, is if you get things your way. I've heard people even say, and talking about loved ones who are living, who are living in a sinful way of life. I mean, uh, we're all sinners, but overtly living in sin, that's their choice. They say, well, I kind of hate it, but at least they're happy. That's idolatry. I'm not just being mean. That's idolatry. No, not at least if they're happy. God is the Lord. He is worthy of all. There's nowhere in the Scriptures where God says, listen, I don't want you to do that, but as long as you're happy, just go for it. Because your happiness trumps all. But we're, we're surrounded by that, and we begin to be influenced by that and think, well, my happiness is really what matters. It's my comfort to what I want. But listen, love doesn't seek its own. And God in mercy to us, in kindness to us, has saved us and is teaching us, oh no, that is not why you are here. Look at, so let's, so let's ask the question. If, love, if, if, if um, love doesn't seek its own, what does love seek? Philippians chapter 1, a couple of verses. This is just foundational Christian life that we, you probably all know and have heard of, and yet, wow, we have to hear it about, I don't know, every third day it seems like, right? So if love does not seek its own, what what does love seek? Philippians 1, Paul tells us in verse 20, look at, this is Paul's personal mindset. This is really how he thinks and how he values. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed in context of persecution, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ is shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's what Christian love seeks. Christian love doesn't seek its own, but it seeks that more than anything else, that Jesus Christ would be magnified through my life. And that's going to happen as I'm yielding myself to his word. As he is influencing my thoughts and my actions and my desires and my behaviors. 
as I'm drawing closer to him. That's what I want more than anything else is that the influence of Jesus would have more weight in me than my own selfish sinfulness. I want him to be glorified in me by the way that I talk, by the way that I think, by the things that I pursue, by the how I deal with others. I want Christ to be shown as great in me because this is my life, Paul said. For to me, to live is Christ. That's not just a little religious add-on on Sundays, right? No, my whole life is wrapped up in Jesus. He's my everything. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. That means He has authority over me. So for to me to live means that I'm seeking to obey Him and to please Him more than anything else. He's most valuable to me. So the way that I prioritize my life and the things that I value, it's, it's all geared toward Christ. Do you need that reminder today? <laughs> that love doesn't seek its own. Love seeks Christ above everything else. You know that all of the things in this world, all of our selfish desires, they're going to fade away. Jesus will be forever, won't he? Jesus will be forever. So as we heard the sermon last week from Brother Sack on living with an eternal perspective, isn't that a practical outworking of that? Of pursuing that which has eternal value the most, of making that our ultimate priority. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul again speaking. And notice what he says about Jesus, his death, and how it, one thing that he has died for, for us. 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, it, it motivates us, it, it, it compels us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth, that means no more, should no more live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You know what Jesus is, Paul saying there is that Jesus died for me not only to accomplish my forgiveness, and give me a home in heaven. But Jesus has died for his people. That we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Somebody said a great practical way to live this out is in all that we do. Can I say, this is for you, Lord. Right, with good conscience. This is for you, Lord. Lord, all that I'm doing, this is for you. So the way I go to work today, and I'm diligent, and I'm honest, I'm faithful, this is for you, Lord. Can I indulge a sinful thought and say, this is for, nope, can't do that, nope. Can I tell somebody off and say, that was for, nope, can't say, that wasn't for you, Lord. To live consciously, live consciously, as Brother Jim read in Romans 12, to present our bodies, our whole lives, as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I know that none of us are there perfectly, right? But that's our pursuit. That's to be our pursuit of living with Christ truly at the center. And I want to look at, one more, one more passage, at least one more on this point, in John chapter 4. I want to look at Jesus himself as a man, as he lived. This, this passage moved me again this week. Jesus as a man and his mindset at living. So if we're to follow him, look at his mindset. So this is John chapter 4, wonderful passage when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. Beautiful story of grace. And remember, his, he's talking to the woman at the well, and the disciples had gone off into the town to buy some food and bring it back. He brings, they bring the food back. He doesn't want to eat, and he, they can't figure it out, so he says, I'm giving you a spiritual lesson here about the food. So 
in verse 31, In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat, food to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, get this, My meat, my food, is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. You get that? My food. In other words, what satisfies me. Food is good. It satisfies us. Food drives us. It keeps us going. It sustains us. So that which keeps me going, that which sustains me, that which gives me pleasure, that which fills me, that which I'm focused on, Jesus is saying, is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. What a way to live. And remember, what was the will of the Father? To bring his elect to salvation. So Jesus is saying, what my focus here, what motivates me, what sustains me, is to do the will of my Father, to honor him and to accomplish his work. So God hasn't given us the work of dying on the cross for sinners, right? But God has given us a work. And so our spirit should say, my food, my focus, my desire is to do God's will found in his word, right? To obey him, to be conformed more to his image, to serve in his kingdom. That is what sustains me. So Jesus didn't have a mindset while he was here of, what's the next fun thing to do? I'm not against fun. I mean, we enjoy all the blessings of life. You know me. But he wasn't just living for just ease and comfort and as long as I'm happy and selfishness and all the things that we gravitate towards. Listen, my brothers and sisters, love, love does not seek its own. Christian love, Jesus' love in our hearts does not seek its own. It seeks Christ as our life, and it seeks more than anything else to do the will of God. And guess what the practical outworking of that will look like? I won't turn there, but Philippians, where we just read, Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What's the rest of that, that book? What do you see? You see an emphasis on serving others. That's the practical outworking of it. You see an emphasis on joy in Christ and his salvation, even when there's suffering. You see an emphasis on contentment in chapter 4. Paul said, I've learned in whatever condition I'm living in to be content. You see a generous spirit, a church that was giving of their resources even though they weren't wealthy. That's the practical outworking of love seeking Christ above all, is that we serve others in his name, we're generous, we're content, and we're rejoicing in Christ because our focus is found upon him. Man, I want to live that way more, don't you? I want to be more consistent in pursuing that. So love does not seek its own. It's seeking Christ at the center. Then back in 1 Corinthians 13. Love seeks not its own, then he says it's not easily provoked. Love is not easily provoked. This word provoked can be used in a good sense in the Bible. It speaks of of it in Hebrews 10, that we consider one another to provoke to love and to good works. So that can be a good stirring up. Acts 17 uses the word as well when Paul was in Athens and saw the city wholly given to idolatry and he's stirred up, he's grieved, he cares about God's glory. But here, it's obviously in a negative context. We could say it this way, love has self-control over one's emotions. Proverbs 25, love has self-control over 
one's emotions. Proverbs 25, 28. We had our, probably Catherine when she was tiny, memorized this verse. And so we've said it a thousand times, and it doesn't lose its punch. It really doesn't. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that's broken down and without walls. So in those times, in the old times, you want to live in a city that's well protected. So you don't want to go live in a city where the walls are shabby, there's a lot of holes in them, they're broken down, because you will make yourself vulnerable to the enemy. So you want to live in a city where the walls are up high and they're thick, and say, man, that's where that's a safe place to live. Enemy have a hard time getting there. What a powerful image the Scripture uses. Think about that city wall, either strong and fortified, or there's holes in it, and the enemy can easily get in. He that hath no rule, no governing, no control over his own spirit is like a city that's broken down and without walls. So we've all experienced it, haven't we? Regrettably. Man, somebody did something. Somebody said something. They pushed our button, as we say. And we knew better. We knew better. I should, I don't, don't lose it here, Timothy. Hold it back. Hold it back. And we didn't do it. And before we knew it, there's stuff coming out of our mouth. We're like, man, where's this, where's this, who am I? We made ourselves vulnerable to the enemy, didn't we? Because we didn't rule our own spirit. My dad, he wouldn't mind me telling you this, he, his, one of his vices, he's got a quick temper. And I, yet I remember the good parts about my dad. Sometimes when something would, would happen to potentially exasperate, and, here, and here's when he, was in his, when he did it right. And you knew what was going on. Dad just got his button pushed, and man, he's working hard to hold it in. He's working hard. I have found myself doing that. That deep breath, right? The count to ten to go take a walk if it's possible, whatever it takes. See, here, here, here's, here's the heart issue behind this. And if this doesn't convict you, imagine having to study this stuff all week, right? If this doesn't convict you, then you, you ice cold. Here's the bottom line. Here's the heart issue. I want to be king. I want to be king. Either my kingdom or God's kingdom. So here's how my kingdom works, and you can put your name in, because it's the same way with you, I'm sure. Right? I'm a pretty happy guy. When, guess what? When people revolve around me, right? When people revolve around me, they do pretty much what I want them to do. They cooperate. Everything's great. And even the weather revolves around me, right? I want it to be how I want it to be. The traffic revolves around me. The menu for the day revolves around me. Uh, My schedule doesn't get interrupted, right? I just work things out exactly how I want. And we can name a lot of things. And you probably like, well, that sounds pretty good. I like that. But guess what? Guess what? Oh, by the way, by the way, I want the store clerk to get through the line pretty quickly be cheerful, which they ought to be. Be cheerful, let's get this thing done. I ain't got time to wait behind incompetency, or I'm going to lose it. Hey, this is where Christianity is the rubber meets the road. But God cares about moments like that. He does. God sees our heart. Oh, for a heart to praise my God. That's why I call the song out. He cares about those little moments. That's real Christianity. That's real following Jesus. So, 
So the issue is this, well, Lord, you know what? And it's not wrong. It's not wrong for me to, to want the traffic to cooperate. That's perfectly fine. And it's not wrong for me to, to not have a thousand interruptions that are annoying. That's, that's perfectly understandable. But guess what? When it happens, I recognize, Lord, you're king today, and I'm not. So guess what? That store clerk is not out of the realm of God's providence. The traffic's not out, out from under. That's not just floating out there and God's not in control. God is good at revealing our hearts. And he can reveal our hearts through traffic or through an interruption or through somebody who's annoying. And we say, ooh, wow, Lord, you've exposed me. Thank you for exposing me, Lord. Give me fresh grace. Love is not easily provoked, not exasperated. And again, this, this overlaps with long-suffering and not seeking our own. So in those moments, right, sometimes you don't have a spiritual thought in those moments, right? So you've got to just do what my dad did, deep breath and hold it back. And then later you can process it better, right? But here's, here's the thought process behind it. In this moment, whatever annoying moment that it is, big or small, in this moment it's more important that I love God and this person than that I show out because I didn't get my way. In this moment, it's more important that I love God and this person than I just blow my top. Love doesn't seek its own. See, our, our anger is connected to our loves. Pretty powerful thought. Our fear, everything, to our love. I get angry about the things that I really wanted to go well. Or I, I care about this deeply. And there's, that's where you see righteous anger coming in. We, we would be angry, and rightfully so, at certain evils because we love what's right and true. So a lot of times our exasperations, our anger, our being easily provoked, it, it reveals, man, in this moment I'm loving this too much. It's not wrong for me, to, again, to want the traffic to be good or want this or that, but maybe I'm loving that too much. I'm loving that more than I'm yielding to God's kingdom. So love doesn't seek its own, is not rude, doesn't seek its own, is not easily provoked. Love, positively, we could say it this way, love has self-control over one's emotions. All right, so don't despair if after that point you're like, man, let's just go home, I'm done. He already, he already roasted me. No, follow after charity, right? Run after self-control. You'll probably blow it in this by Tuesday, but keep running after self-control over your emotions because you desire to honor Christ. And, you're, and, you, and when you do, you see the fruit of it, and you're thankful. So, oh, good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for holding me back. Thank you for helping me to not be easily provoked. And then this one, love thinketh no evil. Love thinketh no evil. The word thinketh here is a wonderful word that we love to talk about, like in Romans. It's the word for impute. It's a transfer. Like a, like a legal credit. We love to talk about that. How that God, and it's the Greek word I think, legizomai, God, legizomai, he counts, he reckons, he thinks of his people as righteous. He charges righteousness to our account because he charged our sins to Jesus' account. That's, that's great stuff. Same word here, thinketh, reckon, charge. Love doesn't reckon or charge Evil, And there's two different ways we can understand this, and I'll look at both of them. The first is this, is that love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So it's not continually charging, yep, she did something else. I'm going to remember that. I mean, just imagine if you try to have a relationship with somebody, and you get together and say, well, let me get out my list. Here's the 15 things that you've done that have offended me lately. 
and it was on 349 last Thursday when you said this, and you thought, we have a problem. Now, that's a little silly, and let's, but let's think about this, because this is, this is an issue, right? This is an issue. So love doesn't keep an account of wrongs. Love doesn't um, keep a record of wrongs. So it may be something big, I mean, really painful, really, really hard that someone has done to you to hurt you. And listen, the Lord cares about that. I want you to know that. Aren't you glad God has compassion on us? You know that Jesus as a man knew what it was to be wronged? I mean, injustice. To be betrayed, to be lied about, to be slandered. Christ cares about that. You can fellowship Jesus in those moments. We have a high priest, Hebrews says, who's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. I'm thankful for that. So we, we lean into forgiveness. We lean into not harboring that resentment and that bitterness with us. It could be the petty stuff, like we just let you know, 15 things you've done. And some people have a problem with that. These petty things, they just they can't forget. They can't get over. But love, I cannot love you and keep a running tab of the things that you've done against me. And I can't love you and do that at the same time. So love calls us to forgive. Now this doesn't mean that there's never confrontation and rebuke. Love covers a multitude of sins. There's a lot we put up with, but sometimes you have to confront things. And there can't really be, when there's especially, especially very big issues, there can't really be true reconciliation until there's repentance. That's, that's another sermon for another day. But our, our heart set, if we can say it that way, our mindset, our heart frame, our disposition, should be that we're continually ready to forgive. I'm not holding bitterness against them. They've, they've done it wrong to me. They haven't asked for forgiveness. And that's a problem. It's an issue. But I'm working really hard. Lord, give me grace to not hate, to not wish evil upon them. I'm ready to forgive them if they come and ask. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Another way to, another way to say this positively is that love is generous in mercy and forgiveness. Love is generous. Love is generous. Psalm 86.5, I believe it is, says that, Lord, you are good, and you are ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy to all those who call upon you. Don't you love that about God? The God's up back there saying, yeah, I don't know, I'm not really ready to forgive today. No, I am, I'm just like he's, I'm sitting on ready. I want to forgive you. I'd be delighted to show you mercy. He's good. He's ready to forgive. And he's abundant, plenteous in mercy to all those that call upon him. And so as we rejoice in his disposition, that disposition of his towards us, so we're called to reflect our Father in heaven in the same way. So I want to love you by not wishing evil of you, even if they've never asked for forgiveness. And some of us here today have been hurt by people who've never asked for forgiveness and great harm, and maybe tremendous damage in relationships, and they're on their own way. So we could say, man, I hold that bitterness in, or we could say, Lord, have mercy on them. I want to pray for my enemies. I want to be ready to forgive if they come ask. Right? Love, we see our own sins. We see our own need of mercy. We see the, our own uh, blessing of forgiveness that God has given us, and so now then we are, we are ready uh, to forgive others. So love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Ephesians 4, in verse 32, you know these verses. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving 
one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The next verse, be ye therefore followers or imitators of God as dear children. So just as our Father has shown great mercy and forgiveness to us, so love seeks to pass that on towards others. God freely and fully forgives, so love does the same. Love is generous in forgiveness. Number two, though, of this love doesn't keep a record of wrong, or love thinketh no evil, it also could be uh, understood this way, is that love doesn't impute a sinful motive. So love doesn't assume the worst if it doesn't know. So this is, this is a companion, this would be a companion passage if that's the case to Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. As they say, one of the most well-known and misunderstood verses in the Bible. So Matthew 7, 1 does not mean you can't say the way I'm living is sin, even if the Bible says it's sin, because you can't judge. The Bible says judge not that you be not judged. If you look in the context of what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about false judgment. When I, I don't know your motive, I don't know your heart. If what you were doing is sin, then the Bible judges that. And so I can say that's wrong, not because I say it, but because God says it. That's not evil or harsh or anything of that nature. Jesus, in one place, he said, judge righteous judgment. So get it right. But here, in Jesus in Matthew 7, and here in 1 Corinthians 13, it's the idea of, I'm assuming a motive about someone I really don't know. Well, yes, she said that, but you know, she really meant this. Well, I know why he did that. I know why he did that. Because he was thinking about this and that and the other, and before you know it, you've got it all figured out. Old Joe Blow has got a terrible motive, and, and, just, and you've assumed it, and you don't know. I remember one time about a year ago, Meredith was sharing with me something that someone had given her a little counsel or advice, and I just, I couldn't, I, I was so, I didn't, where did this come from? The sinful, I don't, I'm not going to bow down to her agenda, something like that I said. I was assuming from her counsel, she had this idea in mind. I thought, where, and Meredith, she told me off pretty good. I needed that. Well, where did I come up with that? I didn't know. I was assuming she was speaking it not in love, but in the wrong way. Anybody ever do that? <laughs> you know what love does? Love is generous, as we've just said. Love tries to think the best about others. So I, if I don't know the motive, I can't judge. Now, it's also acceptable to do this. Maybe a situation that's hard, it's difficult, you're not sure, some of the facts look shady. You know what love can do? Love can suspend judgment. Sometimes we think we have to have an opinion when we really don't know. I don't know enough to judge in this matter. And so love can withhold judgment because I don't know. But it's not seeking to impute evil motives when it does not have that knowledge. Listen, that's real, isn't it? We're talking in real life stuff today, 1 Corinthians 13. So love thinketh no evil. Verse 6, love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now, I look at this list in, in 1 Corinthians 13. This is one of the ones that distinguishes this as Christian love. Okay? Love rejoices in the truth. That means that love delights in God and His ways. Love rejoices in Jesus, the embodiment of truth. So love, Christian love, true love, 1 Corinthians 13 love, love loves God and loves what God loves and hates what God hates. So love is not, again, just 
vague, strange sentiment. If someone has God love in their heart, they love God. They love Jesus, and they love what he loves. They rejoice in the truth. But they also don't rejoice in iniquity. They, they can't rejoice in sin. They rejoice in love. They have a holy appetite for God. They delight in what God loves. So, so they, they can't rejoice in sin. All right, so go back in your mind. It's been a while since we've been there. Think about the church at Corinth in chapter 5. Remember, there was a man who was living in a sexually immoral relationship. And the church was just condoning it. They were, in fact, kind of boasting about it. And Paul said, you can't do that. So if the brother doesn't repent, you've got you to let him go. He, he has to be put out of the church. You say, man, that doesn't sound very loving. It actually is very loving. It's called tough love. And then when he repented in 2 Corinthians, they didn't want to welcome him back. He said, Paul, you've got to welcome him back. He repented. He's genuine. He's real. He's shown his, his repentance through his fruits. Now, I don't know if this was being said in Corinth, but this, might be what, this is what would be said today. If you love me, you have to affirm and celebrate everything that I affirm and celebrate. If you love me, you have to celebrate and affirm the lifestyle choices that I make. Otherwise, you hate me. Folks, that, that's, where our, that's where our world is. But it's not love. And I recognize this, this hits close to home. Right, because we all have people that we love, family or whoever, that aren't following Jesus. And the world's telling you, and maybe they're telling you, well, I just, I have to, yeah, they're, I have to be happy for them in that. I've got to celebrate and affirm them in that. Otherwise, it'll make them feel bad, it'll be awkward, and so I need to just celebrate with them in that. But that's not love. They say, well, if you, don't, if you don't affirm what I'm doing, if you don't celebrate, I mean, you hate me in that case. That's what hate, speech, all that. That's hateful. It's not hateful. Now, you can say the truth in a hateful way. That's another story, right? So how do we handle this? Love cannot condone sinful behavior. Love can't say, you know what, I'm going to be kind to them. I'm going to be warm to them. They also know where I stand because I'm trying to stand where God stands. And I'm praying for God to work in them. I'm praying God will do what only he can do in their heart. And I'm looking for opportunity if he gives it to speak the truth in love to them. So they always know I can't approve of their sin. But they can always know I can, I can hug on them and I can, I can give them a meal and I can be gracious to them, but I cannot. I would be sinning. And I would not be loving them by affirming them in a sinful way of life. See, this is what distinguishes true Christian love from a skewed view of love in the world. Love is not always warm and fuzzy, folks. Sometimes love is hard. Sometimes love is tough. Love has to tell the truth, doesn't it? It has to tell the truth. In the church, in the area of church discipline, sometimes we think, well, we just have to love them. We, they can still do whatever they do. We just, that, that's not love. That's not what the Bible says. There's times we have to, there's lack of repentance, we have to put people out of the church. That's what the scripture, 1 Corinthians 5 says. In prayer and in hope that God restores. Not because it's pharisaical or hypocritical or we think we're better. 
That might not be, that might not be comfortable for us, but, but we're talking about love, and we're talking about Christ and his ways. So love, it rejoices in the truth. And listen, love, love, love to see God work in people. I love the story of Barnabas in Acts. They said, Barnabas, come and see what's happening in Antioch. The gospel is spread there. And he went and he said, and he was glad because he saw the grace of God. Love, love to see God work in truth. It's not jealous of God using others. Oh, but it, it can't rejoice in iniquity. It grieves over it. It mourns over it. Not in a self-righteous way, but in a genuine way, it mourns over it. Well, then finally in verse 7, and we'll close with this verse. So let's, let's think about this. Love suffers long. Love is kind and gracious. Love doesn't envy. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not seeking its own way. It's seeking the Lord. It's seeking Christ, seeking to do the will of God. It's not easily exasperated or provoked. It has self-control over its own emotions. It forgives. It's not, it's not imputing false motives. It doesn't celebrate evil. It celebrates truth. So we could say it this way, that love is selfless, love is generous, love is gracious, right? And then look at verse 7. Beareth, it bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let me look at the middle two first. Believes and hopes all things. This does not mean gullibility, okay? There's Proverbs that warn us about believing every word. So this doesn't mean all things universally. It doesn't even mean hope all things universal. I think the idea here is, is that love tries really hard to believe the best. And then it'll hope for the best. It'll believe all the things it should believe. It's not going to believe a lie. It's not going to believe something that's obviously untrue or very suspicious. Love's going to try to be generous is the same idea. Trying to believe the best, trying to hope for the best. And then notice these, these how it sandwiches it. It bears all things and it endures all things. I've never seen this before until preparing for these messages. You know, how many times, three times, it emphasizes directly endurance or long-suffering in love. The first one was, it suffers long, verse 4. And then verse 7, it bears all things. It's putting up with a lot. And then it closes with, it endures all things. I think the Lord's emphasizing this to us. We don't just love our fellow, and here, the context here is the church, but of course the principles go beyond we don't just love folks when they're easy to love. We don't just love folks when it doesn't require much of us. We don't just love folks when it's comfortable. Love loves for the long haul, just like God's love for us. Don't we all just delight and take great comfort in? His compassions fail not. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faith. We say thank you, Lord, for being that way towards us. And so we want to reflect that. Hey, I'm committed to you, brother or sister in Christ, when you're pleasant and when you're a little bit sour. I'm going to love you when you are requiring a lot of me right now. I'm going to love you on the good days and the bad days in Christ Jesus, because I've received that kind of love. I tell you what, love is a glorious thing, isn't it? True Christian love. And that's what that church needed. And that's what this church needs. Not that I see a great, huge hole, but we, we need it. We can never grow uh, too much in love, can we not? 
Let us ever keep our eyes on Jesus. Where we're convicted, all right, let's get to work. But not despair. Because of what we said at the beginning, our love has many holes. The love of Christ has no holes and no flaws. So we can run with our, our wounds today in 1 Corinthians 13 and run to the Lord. Say, Lord, patch me up. Lord, fill me up. Lord, empty me of myself. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your forgiveness. And help me, Lord, to reflect you in your perfect love. Let's bow in prayer.